Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Mero Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore, mythology, we retell the tale and have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan and I am your host and your Fireside bard. Welcome to episode number 36 of Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network Studios here on Westland Row in Dublin. I feel very, very energised and very excited to be coming to you today because we are hard at work here at Fireside HQ, all in the mix of the preparations for our very first live show, the Fireside Sessions, which is on August 22nd at Bellow Bar in Dublin. When this episode comes out, we're about two weeks ahead of ourselves at the moment. I looked at the schedule. This episode will come out just about a week before, so preparations will be well and truly nearly nearly done at that stage and who knows hopefully it may have even sold out by the time you're listening to this but if it hasn't tickets are available at eventbrite.ie forward slash the fireside sessions beginnings that is forward slash the fireside sessions beginnings so what is our live show well if you haven't listened to this podcast before you are very welcome check this episode out and if you like it why not go back to the very beginning and if you really like it why don't you come along to see the live show so our live show is going to be called the fireside sessions beginnings it's going to be an evening of storytelling. We're going to have folklore, mythology, some true tales and some music as well. We're going to have some special guests of uh, both storytellers and musicians. I'm delighted that this is the first time I can announce some of our guests. So one of our storytellers, I'm delighted to say, is going to be Angus Og McAnally. Angus is a friend of mine, but he is also, he is the director and producer of Rise Productions uh, Theatre Company here in Dublin. He ran the immensely, immensely popular and very successful Irish theatre podcast, the Rise Productions podcast, which interviewed... Uh, folks from the theatre scene in in Ireland. It was brilliant. He ran it for two years. He ran it for one year, 52 episodes, took a couple of years break and then did it for another year and I stopped it again. But it's incredible. He's an incredible host. Angus, any time I've been out with him, I've worked with him before. We worked together on a play. He is, he's a natural storyteller and he's the mythology, the Irish mythology is his bread and butter. He literally eats it for breakfast and he actually is a big fan of this podcast, which I was delighted to find out. So Angus O'Mac and Ali, we have a couple of other storytellers. 
I can't reveal them just yet, but I'll definitely be able to reveal them by the next episode. And I'm sure they'll have been released on uh, f- on Instagram at this point as well. But I'm delighted to say our musical guest, I'm so excited about this, I'm delighted they were available, is going to be Dara and Michal Healy from the band Boxing Banjo. Dara and Michal are two of the most gifted musicians I have ever seen. I had the great pleasure of working with them in America. They were on Celtic Nights, the show I was touring America with. Dara is a box player. He's an accordion player and and um, bowron player. And Michal is a mandolin guitar and banjo player. So they are from a four-piece named Boxing Banjo, but we have got the box and we have got the banjo. And I can't wait to, for those who come along to see these two guys in action. I really don't think you'll have seen anything like them. They uh, they truly are just some of the most gifted traditional Irish musicians I've ever seen. Musicians full stop. Musicianship, is, I've never seen quite like it. And on top of that all, they're two of my very, very dear pals. And they're from Castle Bar in Mayo. So they're all the way over on the West Coast. So I very rarely get to see them. I've only seen Michal once since we got back from... America and I haven't seen Dara at all so aside the fact that I'm very excited to have them as guests I'm really looking forward to seeing them as well and the night itself so yes Dara and Michal Healy will be absolutely dazzling our audiences uh, with with the banjo and with the box and the bowron and whatever whatever they want really I can't wait to see what they do but so those are two of two of the main guests that we're going to have in our evening of folklore, mythology, true tales, and tunes, how the night will work is we'll have uh, we'll have uh, guests getting up in the first half, but we're going to culminate in a retelling of the mythological cycle of Irish mythology. We're going to condense it down. Basically, what the first what was it, fifteen episodes? Uh, every other episode of this podcast was about the first cycle of Irish mythology. I want to really condense it down into a through line. That is the challenge of the night. But that is enough about the Fireside Sessions. But once again, that is the Fireside Sessions beginnings at Bellow Bar, Dublin, August 22nd. And you can get tickets at eventbrite.ie. Please do come along. If you can't make it along, the other ways you can support this podcast is, as always, to leave a rating to subscribe on iTunes wherever you get your podcast leave a rating leave a comment these do make a difference these do make a difference as we try and climb through the podcast charts and to make this a podcast of significance that will last uh, they, there is no comment there is no rating that is not going towards that and if you really want to support it you can so of course at the patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast any amount at all that you can donate to that if at all would be greatly appreciated but the Fireside Sessions, our live show, is our main focus at the moment. So please do come along to that if you are around Dublin. But enough, enough plugging. But what is our story today on episode 36? It is the story of Cormac McArt. Cormac McArt is a king we have met in the Fenian cycle. He was in the time of Fionn McCool, but this is his story. This has nothing to do with the Fianna. I kind of mentioned before, I think, that the historical cycle features a lot of characters that we have met before, mainly in the Fenian cycle there, often kings that Fionn McCool dealt with. And I've tried, for the most part, to have them more or less in isolation, except where I really see it, you know, to appreciate them on their own terms, because 
when you start trying to put the mythology side by side, that's where the timelines tend to collapse in on each other and you try and build your own one around that. So for the most part, we try to see how this uh, how this stands on its own, but we will tell you uh, how it ties in as well afterwards. But I'm going to get down to the story itself. It's a nice meaty one. But here is the story of Cormac McArt on Fireside. Cormac McArt. Cormac McArt was thought to be the greatest king era had ever known. This is of course a bold statement, especially for a collection of tales known as the King Cycle. We have heard so many stories of so many great kings. What is it that makes Cormac stand above them all? To find that out, we have to, as always, go right back to the beginning. Cormac's father was Art. Art was the son of Khan. Khan had been a great druid, and he instilled in his son Art a burning passion and desire to become king. Art had a good claim to the throne, but so did another. The contender's name was Louis McCon. Art and Louis agreed to meet in battle and to hack and slash at each other until only the one true king remained. Art wanted to be kitted out with the fiercest weaponry Era had seen. So he went to see Ulk Akka, who was the greatest smith. Ulk Akka was not only wise in the ways of weaponry and metalwork, but his years and experience meant his ear was frequently sought for counsel. When Art arrived at Ulk Akka's house, the old smith berated his request. Both you and Louis McCann have strong claims to the throne, but there are many other ways to decide who should be king. I have spent my life crafting instruments of death. I don't have to make another today. But the young and impetuous Art would not listen to the counsel of the wise old man. He demanded blood and a weapon to achieve it. Realising there was no convincing the bloodthirsty youth, Ulk Akka asked Art how many children he had. When Art told him he had none, Ulk Akka went to his daughter, Akhtan. My child, I have always wanted the best for you. A handsome contender to the throne has just entered my workshop. He is almost sure to die tomorrow, but if you lie with him tonight and bear him a son, your child will be of royal blood and may be king one day. You would live in safety for all of your days. But father, what if he doesn't die? Then you will have a king for a husband and for a son. I can't protect you forever, but this is something I can do for you. Father, it seems like I am the one who would have to do something here. Octon, I am a smith. A respected smith, no doubt, but still just a smith. Any day you could be taken away from me like livestock. I am not going to force you into anything while I can. It is a choice I offer you today. Octon had inherited her father's wisdom at a much younger age than he had developed it. She met with Art and found she was indeed attracted to him. She agreed to the proposition. So Ulk Akka said to Art, Since you are so intent on dying, I will make you a weapon. It will take one night... In the meantime, why don't you lie with my daughter so that she may bear you a child, and if you should die tomorrow, your name will live on. D do you do this for all the people you make weapons for? I most certainly do not, 
answered Octon. Later that night, once the deed was done, Octon had a dream. The kind of dream so specific and mysterious it could only be prophetic. She woke up Art beside her and told him, I dreamt your head was cut off, and from your neck grew the roots of a tree which spread across the land. When the tree had reached its tallest height, a wave came and tore it down. Art looked grave. Your dream means that tomorrow I will die in battle, but the roots mean you will carry me a son who will grow up to be king. He will not die in battle himself. The wave means he will die by choking on a fishbone. Choking on a fishbone? Not drowned, said Octon. No, it'll be a fishbone. I've never been sure of anything in my life. The next morning, Art went out to fight Louis McCon, and like Octon's dream had predicted, he was slain in battle. Octon became pregnant, and Ulk Akka drew four circles of protection around his unborn grandchild to protect it from wolves, swords, fire, and drowning. Nonetheless, Octon worried for her child's safety. Now that Louis McCon was king, if he found out Art had a child, the king would surely have them both killed. So Octon set out for the house of a powerful friend of Art's named Lugna. He would protect them both and would be a fine foster father for Octon's baby. Octon and her handmaiden made the arduous journey to Lugna's house. Just when the home came into sight, Octon went into labour and delivered her baby right there in the grass. When the baby was born, a great clatter of thunder was heard across Era. In his home, Lugna heard it and proclaimed, A future king has just been born. After giving birth, Octon was exhausted and asked the handmaiden to watch the infant while she slept. Unfortunately, the handmaiden too was exhausted and passed out with the child in her arms. While both women slept, a she-wolf came along and took the baby in her jaws and carried it away. When Octon awoke, she was distraught and stabbed her handmaiden to death, accusing her of killing her baby. When Octon arrived at Lugna's house, he was convinced that the child was still alive. The gods do not proclaim the birth of a king lightly. Octon, we will find your child, and I will raise him as my son. A widespread manhunt was sent out in search of Octon's baby. Eventually, after nearly a year-long search, a hunter was on the trail of a she-wolf. He tracked her back to her lair, and there found among several wolf pups a hearty, healthy baby boy. Ulk Akka's protection spell had already paid off. The child was brought to Lugna, who named him Cormac, and true to his word, raised him as one of his own. And Cormac grew up truly believing he was Lugna's son. It was when Cormac was nearing adulthood and was sparring with one of his foster brothers that the truth finally came out. Cormac knocked his opponent to the ground and his brother said, Yeah, well, at least I don't have no dad. A disturbed Cormac went to Lugna to ask him was there truth to this comment. And Lugna told Cormac about his true father, Art, the prophecy of his birth and how he, Cormac, had a claim to the throne at Tara. Cormac was instantly resolved. Just when he thought his life had lost all meaning, his purpose came thundering back into focus. 
If that's the case, then I must go to Tara. I have a throne to claim. So Cormac went to Tara, where Louis MacCon was still king. When he arrived, the king was sitting in judgment, one of the most important aspects of ruling. Before the throne stood a sheep herder, a poor old woman with only one small flock of sheep. Her sheep had gotten loose and had eaten the queen's woad. Woad was a very valuable plant that at the time was used for dyeing cloves various colours. Louis's ruling was, In retribution, you must give all of your sheep to the queen. That's ridiculous, came a voice from the back of the hall. All turned in shock to see who had spoken this way to the king. It was, of course, Cormac. The young man stepped forward. The woad will grow back. The sheep will not. The retribution should be a shearing for a shearing. Let the queen have all the wool grown by the sheep for one year and let the debt be settled. It was immediately clear to all in the room that this was absolutely the best judgment. They asked the youth who he was, and the answer came. I am Cormac, son of Art, and I have come to claim my throne. The people of Era were ruthless when it came to their rulers. A simple word of gossip or satire had brought down many kings. In this one judgment, Cormac had proved to them to be a more worthy king than Louis. Astonishingly, Louis agreed. I have been king for over 18 years. I'm tired of ruling, and have clearly lost my sense of judgment. I had to kill your father for the throne. Let this transition be bloodless. All hail, Cormac MacArt, High King of Tara. And with that simple and peaceful transition, Cormac took the throne his father had sought before him, and the second part of his mother's prophecy had come true. And so began one of the most prosperous reigns in the history of the land. But Cormac's story doesn't end there. A few short years into his reign, Cormac was out walking, and he came across a woman at work in a field. She worked with the strength of ten men, and yet had the grace and beauty as if she hadn't worked a day in her life. He approached and found the girl's name was Etna. She was toiling the fields for her foster father, Buaka. After one conversation, Cormac knew he had met the woman he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. He went straight to Buaka to ask for her hand. Buaka had taken in Etna and her two brothers when they lost their birth parents at a very young age. While Etna grew up with a kind and grateful manner, her brothers were cruel and greedy and would frequently bleed Buaka dry. Because they were fostered, the children counted as guests, and thus the refusal of anything they asked was against the laws of hospitality clearly established by the Breton laws pioneered by Cormac himself. So Etna's horrid brothers had taken and taken until they turned their foster father from a wealthy landowner into an impoverished vagabond with nothing to his name but the tract of land they were both standing on. Etna had stayed with him out of loyalty and helped him to do the work he could not do any more due to his age. Burka told Cormac, I love that girl more than I thought possible to love a child. If she was my own flesh and blood, I could not want more for her. It would be an honour for her to marry a king. I could die knowing she was looked after. But I am not her birth father, and so I'm not in a position to give you permission. 
Disappointed but not disheartened, Cormac went to Etna's window that night. Etna, run away with me. Would that I could, son of art, but I am needed here. I will see your foster father is never poor again. I'll do anything for you. Cormac convinced Etna that the blessing of a king could overrule the blessing of a father, and so they ran away together. Months later, when Etna became pregnant, Cormac returned to Boca to tell him it was too late to give his blessing, but he gave the old man the bridal price of ten daughters, returning Boca to his former prosperity. Etna and Cormac had one son and one daughter, Carbra and Alba, and they grew up in the prosper at Tara. Years later, when his children were nearly teenagers, Cormac went out for one of his walks and saw a man emerging from the distance. There was something undeniably otherworldly about this man, from his dress to his skin to his bright golden hair, but it was what he held in his hand that was truly eye-catching. He held a silver branch, with perfect golden apples hanging from its vines. Cormac had never seen anything like it. Stranger still, as the stranger walked, he shook the branch, only for the detached tree arm to omit the sweetest music, so beautiful it could put to sleep even the most tortured insomniac. As soon as Cormac saw this in effect, he concluded, What's that? Give me that. The stranger approached and said, All hail Cormac MacArt, the High King at Tara. I have travelled long and far in the hopes that we may be friends. You are most welcome. We'll be friends if you give me that silver branch. This branch is very special to me and of great value. To equal its worth, you would need to grant me three things in return. Whatever you want and Cormac hastily shook the man's free hand without hearing the terms. So be it. The first thing I desire is your daughter, Alba. Cormac was shocked, but there was no use in protesting. He had already made the deal. His beloved daughter was spirited away by the stranger who told the king he would return in time to claim his other two prizes. Cormac received the branch, and the kingdom wept for the loss of its princess. So the king shook the silver branch and lulled the entire kingdom into a deep slumber so that they may forget Alba. A year later, the stranger returned, this time to claim Cormac's son, Carbra. Again, there was nothing that could be said and nothing that could be done except for Cormac and Etna to grieve for their lost children. Once again, Cormac shook that branch so that they all might be spared the pain. It was only when the stranger came for the third and final time and carried away Cormac's wife, Etna, that the king decided he did not want to forget any more. Deal or no deal, he would pursue the stranger and get his family back. With all the warriors he could muster, Cormac pursued the stranger across the island. Just when it seemed like the entire land had been scoured and the cause was lost, a green mist descended over Cormac and his men. When the mist lifted... His men were gone, and Cormac was alone, alone in a strange land. He was in another world. Cormac knew it at once. In this new world, Cormac saw many strange sights, that if they were dreams, they would surely be a druid's delight to interpret. First, a man thatching a roof 
with what looked like the white wings of a swan. But whenever the man turned to retrieve more, the wind would blow the wings away. Cormac then saw another man in the constant cycle of chopping down and burning an oak tree, a tree that would regrow as it was incinerated. Finally, the king saw a hazelnut tree hanging its branches over five different streams, and hopping between each was a fleshy salmon, the most delicious-looking Cormac had ever seen. Finally, Cormac saw the stranger. Welcome, Cormac MacArt, to the Land of Promise. What are these things that I see? said the king. The man thatching the roof represents the men of art, who spend their lives amassing wealth, which ultimately leaves them unfulfilled and comes to nothing in the end. The man and the tree is those who squander their money only to leave nothing after them. The five streams are the five races of men, and... Is the salmon the salmon of knowledge? No, he's the trout of no crack. Really? No, of course he's the salmon of knowledge. And, um, and who are you? I am Manonin Maclear, god of the sea and of the Tour de Danon. Your rule is destined for greatness, and I come to you as a test. I wanted you to pursue me here to the land of promise, so that I may teach you the wisdom of the world. First, I give you this cup of truth, which will shatter to pieces whenever a lie is told. Mananin told a lie to demonstrate this. The fear bullock wiped the floor with the Tour de Danan at the first battle of my terror. The cup fell to pieces. Never mind your cup. Where are my family? They're here. And Mananin summoned Alba, Carbra, and Etna to Cormac's side. All three are unharmed, said Mananin, and the magic cup reformed as if it had never been broken in the first place. With the cup of truth, Cormac MacArt was also allowed to keep the silver branch, along with the wisdom he had gained. But these were not his to keep. The condition was that these possessions would not belong to Cormac's descendants. When the king died, they would be returned to the land of promise. They could only belong to those who deserved them. The reign of Cormac MacArt was said to have been the most prosperous era had ever seen. The rivers were so full of salmon you didn't need a fishing rod, you just needed to put your hand in the stream and you could grab the most delicious fish. The forests were so thick you couldn't walk through them, and deer and game were so plentiful you only had to cast an arrow in any direction and you would hit something. Cormac lived to a grand old age and died at his dinner table by choking on a salmon bone, as the final prophecy of his birth had always said he would. Cormac had never known this, but while it might seem anticlimactic for one of Ireland's greatest kings not to die in battle, it was ultimately fitting that the king of Prosper and Plenty should die as a result of this indulgence. To be continued. And there we have it. The story of Cormac McGart on Fireside, and I will take a little drink of water. I hope you all enjoyed that. That was uh, like the salmon that he discovered in the Land of Promise. That was a meaty, fleshy episode, a long story, lot to it. 
And usually when I have a longer story like that, I might try and trim it down to its more essential aspects. But I liked all of it, to be honest. I liked every bit of it, so I wanted to include it all. I loved the imagery throughout it, and I thought it was interesting. It was certainly meandering. It has less of a like beginning, middle, and end, but I really liked it nonetheless, and I hope you did too. The thing I want to talk about with it is the Brehan Laws, which were mentioned briefly there because that was a longer episode, so I might have to wrap up a bit sooner than necessary than before I talk about the episode in depth. So this is something I definitely wanted to talk about. The Brehan Laws were a system of laws in Ireland from about the 7th century. They're very much real. They're real, real laws. They were named after... The Brehans, I think, were lawyers of the time who were the ones who introduced the laws. But according to legend, according to mythology, Cormac MacArthur is supposed to have been the king who who pioneered these, who enforced these for the first time. And these laws last until about the 15th century, I think. I think it was like Queen Elizabeth I who dictated that these laws were antiquated and outdated. And it's not entirely incorrect. Some of them are gas but I wanted to read some of them for you here because I really feel that you can get a lot from Irish mythology and folklore by having a look at what the laws that were that were enforced and believed in at the time dictated. So there's various different sections. I'll start off with uh, with music, with the arts. So I'll try and read one of each. I'll read these two from music. So in the law, in the Breton laws for music, there is the harpist is the only musician who is of noble standing. Flute players, trumpeters and timpanists, as well as jugglers, conjurers and equestrians who stand on the back of horses at fairs have no status of their own in the community, only that of the noble chieftain to whom they are attached. So there you have it. And that that's something that I suppose it's still true to the true to this day. The harp is very much considered the real noble Irish instrument. Sure, it's on our bloody passports. The harp, it's on pints of Guinness. The harp is still very much the symbol of Ireland. So that is as far back as that goes as the only noble instrument, apparently. The rest, you only have nobility if you are under the protection of a chieftain. This is a good one. The poet who overcharges for a poem shall be stripped of half his rank in society. Who dictates that he's overcharging for it? I suppose the chieftain again. We have relationships and marriage. Let's see. Oh, here's a quite a specific one. If a man takes a woman off on a horse into the woods or onto a seagoing ship, and if members of the woman's tribe are present, they must object within 24 hours or they may not demand payment of the fine. So you can kidnap everyone, anyone you want any woman you want at least and unless her family give out in in one day it's it's all fair game here's another one if the pregnant woman craves a morsel of food and her husband withholds it through stinginess or neglect he must pay a fine and absolutely that surely that's probably still a law is it to to some degree i mean it is neglect on the unborn child isn't it here we have laws of health so no fools, drunks, or female skulls are allowed in the doctor's house when a patient is healing there. No bad news is to be brought and no talking across the bed. No grunts of pigs or barking of dogs outside. Fair enough. 
Oh, I liked this one. If the doctor heals your wounds, but it breaks out anew because of his carelessness, neglect, or gross want of skill, he must return the the fee you paid. He must also pay you damages as if he himself had wounded you. That's a really good one, yeah. And here we have just a final grouping of random, random Brehan laws. And this is where this story comes back into it. Whoever comes to your door, you must feed him and care for him with no questions asked. It is illegal to give somebody food that has been found with a dead mouse or weasel. And a layman may drink six pints of ale with his dinner, but a monk may only drink three pints. This is so he will not be intoxicated when prayer time arrives. Can't be drunk doing your prayers, apparently. Six pints. That's... That's a, a decent amount. That's that's a nice that's a nice night. It's not a wild night, but it's not the tamest night either. A hearty six pints. But whoever comes to your door, you must feed him and care for him with no questions asked. That's everywhere. That's Greek mythology particularly summed up. The laws of hospitality, they're everywhere. And here we have an example in this story of Etna's brothers when they're under the foster care of Boca that they bleed him dry. There's a very King Lear aspect to that. King Lear who had three daughters, the elder two of which, Goneril and Regan, uh, or Regan, I forget how that's pronounced, that they bleed him dry, that they ask him, he asks his daughters to say how much they love him, and they say, oh yeah, I love you so, so much, and he gives them all the lands, and they end up bleeding him dry. Yeah, so there's an aspect of that in here that really reflects on the Brehan laws. But these are very much real laws, and Cormac Art, part of his legend, is supposed that he enforced those, so I could not mention them and read some of them, because some of them were so, uh, they were so fantastic. Some of them are incredibly ahead of their time, and... Bizarrely, in the 15th century, they were considered quite outdated. Some of them are ridiculous, of course. But to be fair, I think they could have been anything. And the the English at that time would have still enforced English rule on the poor old Irish who were under their dominion at the time and would be for a good bit after that. We have Manon and MacLear. We have a god of the Tour de Danon here. First, first appearance Manon has had since... Not since the Children of Lear, is it? Yeah, I think it is, because it's only really been Children of Lear and uh, the Sons of Tyran when his boat is used by the Sons of Tyran to go off on their on their adventures. He is the sea god. He is the son of Lear, of the Children of Lear. It's always nice. It's it's a funny one. I suppose this is this is true in all mythologies. It seems that there's no particular rhyme of reason like which god comes for which purpose what i mean by that is why is it mananen who brings who brings cormac to the land of promise like it it doesn't necessarily have to be a god associated with the thing with the theme of it it seems that any of them really could have come down and come to him so it's just more personal as to what what god or whose turn it was that day but Manonin is one of the, he's one of the cool gods to imagine. Gods of the sea are always great. Poseidon, Neptune. And Manonin MacLear is such a great name, as difficult as it is to actually say. There was a lot of hard Ks, a lot of hard sentences, particularly at the beginning. In general, Cormac MacArt is hard enough to say. I remember when I was doing, talking about him in the Fenian cycle, that I always struggled with that. 
but we had Ulk Aka and Octon and Louis McCann. We had a lot of ox and muck sounds in the first half of that story that were hard to not wrap your tongue around, wrap your palate around in general. So Cormac McArch, he is one of the kings in the Fenian cycle with Fionn McCool. Most significantly, it is his son, Carbra, who we, who we have uh, kidnapped by Manon. And he is Carbra Lificar, of whom uh, the final fight against the Fianna, he's the one who brings down the Fianna and dies in that final battle. He's the one who kills Oscar from McCool's grandson, the absolute devil. So it's his dad, his Cormac McCart is supposed to have this incredible, incredible rule and reign across his life. And then his son ends up bringing the Fianna down, the absolute pup. How could he possibly follow in his father's footsteps? And he didn't. He decided he'd go the exact other way. And fair play to him, I suppose. I am gonna I'm gonna start to wrap it up there now. But an epic an epic tale that I hope you enjoyed of Cormac McCart. I would like to dedicate that this episode to my own Cormac, Cormac Flood, who uh I don't know if he still listens to this podcast, but he certainly did in the early days. Uh he's uh, one of my very dear friends from going back in the day I've known him since I was in college he's a great lad and I couldn't not but picture him when I was telling the story of Cormac Art. so this one's for you floody this floods for you but thank you so much to you listeners new and old I hope more new and I'm delighted with every old returning hope that you're still enjoying it and still keeping with it all once again, if you enjoy the podcast, follow me on Instagram at Fireside Bart. In case you've been listening to this podcast before, yes, I've changed my Instagram name to make it a little bit more accessible and to try and broaden our reach as much. Same page, though, so if you follow me already, you still follow me. But at Fireside Bard, all one word. Come see our live show, the Fireside Sessions, beginnings at Bellow Bar, Thursday, August 22nd, 8pm at Bellow Bar, Tickets available at eventbrite.ie. Please subscribe, leave ratings and comments on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you can. It does all make a difference. Uh, Thank you, as always, to Jamie, my producer, to Paddy and Alan, the folks here at Headstuff, for continuing to let me do this. I will see you all next time, and you will hear me all next time round the fireside. Goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.